You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, uh, Ryan, we're going to talk about a, a classic paper about one of the fundamental ideas in machine learning. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would call it a fundamental idea, but it's a great idea and it's incredibly popular. So I thought I would tell you a little bit about the idea called latent Dirichlet allocation. Is there an easier way to say that? LDA. Okay, great. LDA. And it's a little bit confusing because there's also... Fisher's linear discriminant analysis, which is what everybody thought LDA was in statistics and machine learning up until these guys wrote this paper. So this was a paper uh, initially appeared at NIPS and then later in the Journal of Machine Learning Research, uh, written by Dave Bly, Andrew and uh, Michael Jordan. It has to be one of the most cited papers in machine learning, if not all of computer science, you know, sort of like 10,000 citations or something. And wow. it's had a tremendous influence on, uh, on lots of different areas, uh, starting with natural language processing and, and sort of representing natural language documents in particular, but it's influenced computer vision and time series and, and lots of other things. It's been extended many different ways in many different directions. But I thought I'd sort of talk about LD, the sort of the basic LDA setup. So the LDA is the kind of prime example of something called a topic model. Thinking about topics in documents is a very nice way to sort of balance simplicity against complexity in modeling natural language. So one of the challenges we always face in machine learning is trying to, to strike a balance between, between models for data that are, are very complicated, that capture lots of intuition, that know about uh, lots of different things going on uh, against models that are simple, uh, maybe don't capture as much, but are very easy to manipulate and very easy to apply to data. Mm -hmm. So latent Dirichlet allocation makes a very strong assumption about documents, uh, which is that they can be represented as bags of words. Oh, no. Yeah. So uh, when we say that something, that we're going to treat it as a bag of words, uh, what we mean is that we're going to ignore the ordering of words in the document. So it's, li it's literally alphabet soup at this point. It's just alphabet soup. Well, I mean, we keep track of the characters in the words, mm -hmm. um, but you might think of it as word soup, but okay. not alphabet soup. <laughs> High-level high level alphabet soup. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, And so what we're going to do is take every document in the corpus that we care about, and mm -hmm. for each one of those, we are going to represent the counts of uh, the number of times that each word in our vocabulary appeared in that document. And the idea with latent Dirichlet allocation is to try to identify situations in which words interestingly co-occur. So it's going to throw away a lot of structure based on word ordering and punctuation and formatting and all that stuff. But it's going to go a little farther than, than just looking at counts. It's going to try to identify what you might think of as words that correlate with each other. Now, that sounds like a, like a maybe not that sort of, uh, maybe not such a rich representation. But what it turns out is that when people write documents, of course, they are talking about something, right? And so within a particular document, people might use the word, say, Democrat, and they might use the word president, and they might use the word Obama. And that when we see a document that has all three of those together, then we kind of know maybe what that document is talking about. And LDA is trying to do the same kind of thing, but without necessarily a priori knowing that politics is something that, that people might discuss. Hmm. But you can infer that from the fact that there are these different kinds of words that tend to occur together. Whereas a, a document that's about the Super Bowl isn't going to talk about probably Democrats and uh, and presidents and so on. And uh, instead, it's going to talk about football. Katy Perry it's and sharks Perry and, and deflating yeah. and Tom Brady. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> but you wouldn't think that a document about the Super Bowl would have sharks in it. 
It's true. Actually, it's it. So this is uh, one of the ways that people have tried to extend ideas like linear allocation and topic models is to account for something called concept drift, of which the left shark is a perfect example. You know, football topics have always had, you know, the word football, the word referee, mm-hmm. the word touchdown, mm-hmm. the goalposts, like all of these different things. Right. And then all of a sudden, one day, people started talking left about sharks. left sharks. <laughs> oh, no. And... Uh, and so this is a situation in which there's still there still exists a kind of coherent concept, a coherent topic here about football, but then suddenly there's it includes this a set of words that hadn't appeared before. It's drifted in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the core idea with topic modeling, though, ignoring this this kind of idea of of how things might shift around, is to try to take these possibly very complicated unstructured text documents and represent them in what we think of as a low-dimensional way, mm-hmm. uh, a kind of vocabulary like you might try to model uh, for uh, for different kinds of documents. Maybe it would contain tens of thousands of different unique vocabulary words, if not hundreds of thousands. And looking at those counts, well, you know, it's just, it's just too high-dimensional. You can't really reason about that. It doesn't sort of compress the documents in any interesting way if you wanted to make a search engine or a visualization right. tool or something like that. On the other hand, if you could take a document and say, uh, you know, this is about football uh, or this is about football and also uh, ba- uh, basketball or you want, or maybe the intersection between football and politics or, or different kinds of things, um, then suddenly you have a compact representation of a document. Now we can say that maybe in this corpus there's, I don't know, 50 or 100 different topics, each of which might contain uh, many different words in our vocabulary, but ultimately we can summarize the document as being which of these sort of 50 or 100 topics is it talking about? Mm-hmm. And that's the core idea with uh, with latent Dirichlet allocation, is to try to build what we think of as a probabilistic model for doing this that says that it actually imagines a process by which a document is generated. So there are topics that somebody might talk about. Those topics have uh, different words in the vocabulary that they prefer. And then ultimately, when we want to create a document, we imagine that the first thing the author does is thinks of some topics, maybe chooses some random topics that they want to talk about, and then spews out words from each of those topics at random until they... That's how I write. I know, exactly. And that's how you get a bag of words. <laughs> is that, and so literally the generative process for, for latent Dirichlet allocation is that uh, I'm going to create a document. I first uh, draw a distribution over topics. And that gives me a, probably a couple of topics that are going to be the important ones, and then maybe a few others that are sort of uh, that are sort of less important. Mm-hmm. And then when I when I need to add a word to this document, I first choose a topic at random from my <laughs> list of important topics. Uh-huh. So I've decided this is mostly going to be about soccer, with a little bit of basketball and a little bit of football and a tiny amount of politics. And then I uh, I say, okay, first word is random, and I choose a maybe I choose a soccer topic, mm-hmm. and then I look at the words associated with soccer. And maybe that's like goal and ball and kick. And I draw one of those words at random and I add that to the document. And then I go back and I draw a new topic. And I and I draw a random word from that topic. And I just iterate this until I have a big bag of words. Mm-hmm. And so what's going to happen, though, is that um, because I decided that this document, because at the very beginning I decided that this, top, that this document was only going to be about a few topics, mostly. It was mostly going to be about a few things. Mm-hmm. Then it will generate most of its words from that small set of topics. Right. And so 
you know, that means that words like kick and goal and uh, and ball and so on, those will be, you know, those will co-occur quite mm-hmm. often in the document. Mm-hmm. And it'll have many fewer words, I don't know, about some other thing like uh, neuroscience. It won't have so many brain and neuron and, uh, uh, you know, hippocampus and things like that in the right. document instead. Yeah. And, um, and so this is a way to say that a document is well summarized by a small number of topics and that we kind of have a way to imagine how that might come into, in, into being. So latent Dirichlet allocation describes this way of generating documents. Mm-hmm. And then given that probabilistic model and given some data, we can then perform inference. We can mm. learn what the topics are and what words those topics care about from a corpus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you can learn about coherent ideas like sports or neuroscience or genetics or particular kinds of politics and so on. And you get to choose how many, to- you know, how many topics you're going to have or maybe you have to choose how many topics you're going to have, depending on whether or not you want that to be a free parameter. And then you can run this, and you will discover uh, you will discover interesting collections of words that tend to co-occur together. And often we kind of eyeball these and are and and find them interestingly coherent. And so as a result, it's uh, it's become very popular because it's uh, it has this kind of magical kind of feeling in which. You don't tell about any semantics. You don't tell like what the topic should be a priori. And it seems to sort of discover something about the semantic hmm. meaning of these words based on, um, you know, and group them together coherently. So it's a really fun thing. And like I said, people have applied it to lots of other areas to try to learn about the way maybe different uh, objects might appear in an image together. And, and it's been generalized to other ideas where you don't, where things evolve over time, where you don't have to choose a number of topics where it tries to maybe get beyond the bag of words assumption. In fact, we're just about to talk to Hannah Wallach, and she wrote a paper exactly about that. In fact, titled Beyond Bag of Words um, <laughs> that, that tries, to, to, tries to challenge that assumption. It's a very exciting, interesting area, it's, and it's, um, it builds on ideas that anybody who has a little bit of training in machine learning can understand. So ideas like matrix factorization, principal component analysis, singular value decomposition, and so on. Um, and so it's a, the kind of paper you can read without having a huge amount of background and, and then actually apply and actually see how it, see how it works. Plus, there's got to be dozens of implementations uh, of it out there that you can download and try on some corpus you care about. Really fascinating, Ryan. We will uh, have a link to the original 2003 paper from NIPS on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And we're going to get to talk to Dave Bly later in the season. Yeah. I'm super excited. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a really great conversation. So stay tuned for that. So, Ryan, this week's listener question is about the size of data sets. Hi, Ryan and Catherine. My name is Brian Wilder, and I'm an undergraduate at the University of Central Florida. I'm looking to start a PhD focused on machine learning next year, and I'm particularly interested in Bayesian inference, including non-parametric Bayesian methods. That led me to a question about the importance of scalability in machine learning. One comment that I've heard from a lot of researchers, especially people in industry, is that any algorithm which scales worse than linearly, or maybe worse than n log n, can't be applied to large-scale problems. Designing algorithms like that, which basically just get to make one pass through the data, seems both extremely challenging and also very limiting, because it rules out many families of machine learning algorithms from the start. Do you think that more elaborate methods can eventually be scaled up enough to handle big data? And if not, 
is the importance of small-scale problems that they are applicable to enough to justify the effort. I've loved the podcast so far, so I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks. There's a couple things going going on in this question. I, I think it's a great question, and it's something that comes up quite a lot and in some ways reflects a larger research agenda in machine learning, particularly as it does interface to uh, to industry. So there's two things here. So one is thinking about how to scale up when we have sort of large N, that is uh, a lot of kind of examples and, and thinking about the complexity there. Um, and then the other is kind of more generally, is it worthwhile thinking about smaller problems and developing algorithms that seem specialized for those? So first, think about big data. So big data is, is something that people spend a lot of time talking about and thinking about. And it's uh, it's something that is not as well-defined as as we would like, because I think data is not the central object of interest uh, most of the time. Uh, we do machine learning and statistics and this kind of modeling um, to you know, answer questions about the world, to visualize interesting phenomena, to make predictions, to make decisions, and so on. You know, the kind of the scientific approach to these things is to, um, is to look at empirical data and to try to reason about them formally using models and so on. Uh, this is kind of the name of the game for machine learning and statistics. And sometimes those data are interestingly large. Um, but even so, there's different ways that they could be large that place different demands on, you know, on our algorithms. So the kind of large that he's talking about here, the kind of big, is bigness in N. That is number of examples. So uh, you're Flickr and you have a trillion images that you'd like to model. That presents interesting challenges where you have so many data items, if you will, that you can't even maybe fit them into memory, uh, you know, and can't, and as, as he says, make more than sort of one pass over the data. And that's that's one kind of hardness that's that's definitely challenging and that a lot of us do think about um, for, you know, how do we how do we scale things like Bayesian inference to that setting? Um, and but that's not the only situation, right? There's also things that are sort of big in P, if you will, that is uh, the situation where you have high dimensionality. This comes up in particular, I think of in problems like genomics, where maybe the number of single nucleo, you know, you have a bunch of single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. So these are ways that maybe your genome is different than the population and you might have millions and millions of them, uh, or at least the, that description is, might have millions of dimensions. And we're trying to understand the effect of that, you know, the relationship between, um, between these SNPs and, um, and some phenotype, you know, so how tall are you or what diseases are you susceptible to and so on. And that's a different kind of problem that is big in some sense. And then there's all kinds of other things that I think are, are challenging, which is where the kind of the model is big in some sense. There's complexity that, um, that we'd like to be able to capture. That might be sort of complicated time series or social networks or other kinds of things where it's not as easily characterized as being particularly high dimensional or particularly a large number of data items, but there's a lot of richness somehow in the structure that we're trying to, we're trying to capture. So I think there's not even a single definition of what it means for things to be big. There's plenty of industrial sort of situations where each of these things come up. Um, but I think it's also worth worth sort of uh, examining the core question of whether or not all important problems are big ones. And I think the answer is is sort of certainly not. There do exist large data sets, but ultimately what those help us do is actually answer more subtle questions rather than bigger questions, right? So, you know, what we like about big data potentially is that there are, are like small effects that we can now estimate. And certainly, 
we can identify situations where small effects are industrially relevant, but in some ways what people really want is to answer coarse grain questions, not fine grain questions. We can often answer the coarse grain questions with small data. I think one of the trends that we're going to see for the impact of machine learning on, on sort of you know mainstream life is in personalization, where your devices and your sort of experience interacting with the digital world will become increasingly, increasingly specialized to your behaviors and the things you care about. We already see this when you go on, I don't know, Twitter, and it presents you with friends that maybe you should follow, right? That's a kind of personalization. And there's not really that much data about you individually. It's not a big data problem tackling personalization for a single individual, uh, whether it's you know something like that or or your Fitbit or whatever it is. And yet these are very you know important problems that we want to do well on. Um, and so uh, so you know the point is that I think there's actually quite a, a wide variety of ways that data can be big and small, and that and that it's not like the only game in town is the sort of big N situation. So that's, that's kind of one thing I want to say about whether or not it matters to be good at big data specifically and, and how this relates to the relevance of machine learning algorithms. But taking a step back, I think it's important to recognize that oftentimes different machine learning algorithms you know, have a kind of a complexity that you might read in the paper. That is, here I mean algorithmic complexity. I mean the expense, whether it's linear in the data or n log n or cubic or whatever it is. There's kind of the, the, um, the thing you might read in the paper and then there's the, the kind of the, uh, the reality of, of using that. And, and this can go both ways, but I think one of the important and interesting aspects of machine learning is separating out the model. That is separating out the assumptions that you're going to make about the world, about the kind of inductive bias, if you will, um, from the fitting procedure that you use to apply it to data. This is something that's very salient, again, in the sort of Bayesian inference setting, where we might write down a probabilistic model and that we might have a separate inference procedure that could take uh, many different forms. But I think almost no matter what, whether we're talking about deep neural networks or, uh, or support vector machines or, or whatever it is, this is something that comes up over and over again. There's kind of our, our like way that we reason about the world, the assumptions we want to make, and then there is the way that we fit it. And, um, and by separating these things out, it, while it may be true that for a particular model and a particular set of assumptions, if you fit that model exactly using some sort of gold standard procedure, that the complexity may be very, very high, that it may be very expensive. But by separating out the model from the fitting, then it's often the case that we can come up with interesting and successful sort of approximate fitting procedures or sort of things that we understand that maybe aren't the gold standard, but that have much, uh, you know, but that are much, much cheaper to apply in practice. There's a lot of examples of this. Um, you know, one example might be something like k-means. So you want to do simple clustering. It's the, sort of the first clustering algorithm you learn in, a, in an intro machine learning class. And strictly speaking, the k-means problem is like NP-hard, right? It's the sort of problem that you can't expect to solve in general ever. And yet we do it all the time, right? And why do we do it all the time? Well, it's because the sort of k-means procedure, this iterative thing that, you, that people do in practice, you know, it often leads to pretty good solutions. You you sort of run it a couple times and random restarts, or you use an initialization like k-means plus plus or one of these things. And sometimes there's some theoretical understanding of these, but uh, but you know, it's it's pretty successful and it works. And um, but if you really put your theoretical hat on, then you say, well, man, this thing is in a complexity class that makes it hopeless. I could never apply this in industry. But I have a strong suspicion that k-means is applied very broadly in industry uh, because it's just super easy and it's super basic. 
And uh, but there, you know, there's lots of other examples of this of this as well. So we, you know, just talked about latent Dirichlet allocation, and you know, the initial algorithms that people developed for performing Bayesian inference with the latent Dirichlet allocation model were things like variational inference, you know, mean field variational inference, and Markov chain Monte Carlo, both of which can be pretty expensive to apply to large data sets as they're sort of initially written down. Um, on the other hand, more recently, Dave Bly and, and colleagues have continued to do work in this area about how to do uh, scalable inference with models like latent Dirichlet allocation. And now there are new sets of tools that allow you to scale way beyond what you could do before. So in, in particular, some of their more recent work on what's called stochastic variational inference allows you to look at little subsets of data and, and do really well. And as you say, maybe, maybe do some interesting Bayesian inference on a large corpus of documents only making one pass over the data. So uh, I don't think all big data is big in the same way, and I don't think all interesting problems are best answered through big data, no matter what form that takes. And that I think machine learning has a lot of a lot to say in a lot of different regimes, um, and algorithms that at, at sort of first glance may be um, you know very complicated to apply. You know, over the years we often find interesting ways to to succeed with them, kind of and make continue to make similar assumptions, but but, but you know make them uh, make them scale to large data sets. So, Brian, thanks for your question. And if you have a question for Talking Machines, you can get in touch with us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com, or you can attempt our Twitter handle, T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. And keep the questions coming. These have been, these have been really fun to talk about. Yeah, definitely. So our guest this week on Talking Machines is Hannah Wallach, and currently she's a researcher at uh, Microsoft Research in yep. New York. And she's also uh, an assistant professor at uh, UMass Amherst in the Computer Science Department. That's right. And when we sat down with her, I asked her first about her path to where she is currently academically and in industry. So my background is in machine learning. Um, in fact, this is my 13th NIPS, which means I've spent over three months of my adult life at this conference. <laughs> um, so I am a machine learning researcher by training. Much of my research has been in Bayesian methods of various sorts, uh, specifically Bayesian latent variable models, Bayesian non-parametrics, that kind of thing. I've done a lot of work with statistical topic models, a particular type of Bayesian latent variable model. My PhD work was on topic models and analyzing documents, but towards the end of my PhD, I realized that I am not super interested in analyzing documents for the sake of analyzing documents, and I'm much more interested in analyzing them to better understand the social contexts or social processes in which they were created. Heretic. I know. <laughs> so um, at that point, I started thinking very seriously about ways in which I could use these kinds of methods that I'd been building up uh, expertise in, um, in order to really learn more about social processes. Um, I was uh, coincidentally at that, uh, I guess I became a postdoc working on these kinds of things for a couple of years. Um, and then I ended up getting hired into UMass's then brand new interdisciplinary computational social science institute. Um, and so that gave me a really awesome opportunity to explicitly prioritize some of these research directions. It also gave me some awesome colleagues and collaborators to do this with. 
And at this point, I've been working in computational social science um, for about four years, four and a half years, that kind of thing. What I do on a day-to-day -day level is I develop new machine learning methods and computational tools for analyzing social processes. I look at a wide variety of different social processes. Um, recently, so maybe the past couple of years, I've been primarily working with political scientists, but I also do some work with sociologists, with journalists, and various other people. And it's really fun. <laughs> <laughs> Who are some of the folks that you collaborate with? Are they all in New York with you? or also No. Or? Um, so one of my primary collaborators is a political scientist at UMass Amherst. Um, he was hired at the same time as me into this, this interdisciplinary institute. His name is Bruce Damaris. And we have worked on several different projects together, looking at various different things of interest to political scientists. Um, so we started out working on a project to do with analyzing large collections of previously classified government documents um, in order to better understand government secrecy, transparency, and even to think about developing tools for people within government who are trying to figure out which documents should or shouldn't be declassified. Um, and then from there, we're actually still working on that project now in collaboration with some folks at Columbia. Um, there's a historian there, Matt Connolly, who's been doing a lot of work in that space. Um, uh, Bruce and I also have a project, it's an NSF-funded project, um, analyzing local government email data, which is super exciting for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that there's been, although there's been a lot of data-driven work within or looking at government and the, and the US political system, uh, this has typically been at a federal kind of level and there's almost no data-driven work looking at government at a local level. So it's interesting from that point of view. Um, it's also interesting because this isn't a project for which we can just go suck in some data from the Twitter firehose, develop a method and move on. Um, we had to think really hard about how we wanted to obtain data to answer questions of interest to us. And this is where things get interesting. So at the federal level, you have FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. Um, at the at the state level and local level, uh, most states have sunshine laws that mimic FOIA. Um, this means that all, ki all kinds of government information is explicitly marked as being public record and therefore can be requested uh, unless it's subject to particular exemptions. So in some states, email is one of those data types. We worked really hard to gather email data from uh, a, a bunch of different counties in the state of North Carolina. They have particularly flexible sunshine laws and explicitly mention email records. So if you go to web pages of county governments in North Carolina, it says, please email your representative. This is public record and stuff like that. Um, 
so we actually had this amazing opportunity to do two things. Firstly, to get data and analyze it and answer really interesting questions. And I can talk a little bit about one of those questions. But we also had the opportunity to run an experiment while gathering the data. So there are 100 counties in North Carolina. And we designed a little experiment to investigate conformity effects. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to know whether knowing that other counties had complied with our request would make counties more or less likely to comply. And we're interested in this because these sunshine laws are very complicated and it's often unclear how you are supposed to comply, when you are supposed to comply, what kind of time scale, to what extent. So for example, if somebody requests email records for your county government, is it okay to just ship them a bunch of boxes with printouts? Or do you have to make these things available digitally? These kinds of questions. Right. Um, so what we ended up doing was we contacted 40 counties and we said, phrased more appropriately, but roughly give us email data from your county managers spanning this particular period of time. Did you ask for it in a particular format? Uh, you know, I don't remember off the top of my head. I know in some of our early stuff, people offered to print out things and send them to us, which oh, was not what we wanted. <laughs> um, many other people just said, yes, here are, here's the data in various different com common formats. Um, so we asked for data and some counties complied, others didn't. Um, and what we ended up doing was then taking a list of the counties that had complied. Can you, can you say something about how they complied with the ones that did? Sure, uh, some of them said, here's a website, create a login, go download it yourselves. Some of them said, sure, we'll send you large boxes of printouts that you'll have to pay for yourselves. Uh, some said, yeah, we can send you a hard drive. Some said, sure, we'll set up an FTP site. I mean, a really wide variety of different kinds of things. Um, so what we ended up doing was then taking the remaining 60 counties and dividing them into two subsets. And with one of that one subset, we just said the exact same message, give us your data. Um, and with the other subset, we said, give us your data. This is the list of counties that have already complied. Uh. Yep. And we found that this does make a difference, and it is a statistically significant difference when you are looking at counties for which one of their neighboring counties or a county two hops away was included in that list of compliant counties. Wow. So it turns out that yes, there are conformity effects. Uh, moreover, sorry, not just uh, there are effects not only just in whether or not counties will comply, but also how long it takes them to comply as well. So this is clearly something that does help in speeding up that decision-making process. Um, so we've actually submitted this research to a public policy journal um, because it's pretty interesting in and of itself. So, so yeah, so this is a really fun project because we were able to conduct an experiment that had some really interesting findings just even in obtaining the data, uh, which was great. Then having obtained the data, we 
did a little bit of thinking about the kinds of things we wanted to ask and the kinds of models we wanted to use. And we actually have a model that was published at NIPS back in 2012 that we designed explicitly for analyzing email data of this sort. It's a model intended primarily for exploratory analysis. So somebody gives you a massive collection of data what do you find in that data set? It's a model that models not only the structure of communication, so who's talking to whom, it also models the topic of communication as well. Moreover, and this is something that was maybe tangential to our overall research directions, but it's something that I do think is really important when you're thinking about exploratory analyses, we also, as well as inferring topics of communication and inferring topic-specific communication subnetworks, we also infer two-dimensional, although it could be arbitrary dimensional, visualizations of those communication subnetworks. The reason why I think that's important is that there's this really common workflow when you're working with network data, especially social network data, to come up with a beautiful principled statistical model for your data and to run your model on your data to maybe infer some latent variables, this kind of thing, and then to take your data and your model output, maybe in your latent variables, whatever, and to run all this through some off-the-shelf visualization algorithm, create some pretty pictures, and turn around and say, great, I'm going to draw conclusions on the basis of these pictures. Forgetting that although you did all this really detailed thought about your modeling assumptions for your fancy statistical model, your visualization algorithm has its own assumptions. And so you need to interpret the findings in the context of those assumptions as well. So we wanted to come up with a fancy nice principled statistical model to answer the kinds of questions we were interested in that also produce those visualizations at the same time such that the visualizations were directly interpretable in the context of our model. You can look at those visualizations with your people you know, from local government perhaps as an example and actually say this is what these visualizations mean in the context of our model, our modeling assumptions and the types of questions we want to ask. So we have this model from NIPS 2012. Um, we have since extended it. So what's to, the name of your model? Uh, I think we called it Topic Partitioned Multi-Network Embeddings, which is a bit of a mouth, mouthful, <laughs> but very NIPSy. Does that have a great um, initialism? D does that what? Have a great initialism? Uh, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It just, yeah, we, we, we were quickly trying to come up with something and that kind of stuck. Um, as so, names so you often didn't go do. with something like the South Carolina bureaucrat process or something? No, like we that. did not. And I wish we had. That would have been so much more <laughs> awesome. Um, yep, exactly. No, so it has unfortunately this very Nipsey name. Um, I really hate naming models for what it's worth. It's like the worst part of the entire process. I just, I cannot stand it. <laughs> Anyhow, we have since extended the model to include covariates of different sorts. And the reason why we did this is because we wanted to look at particular questions, social science questions, and I'm gonna give you a particular example. The example we've been focusing on the most is what is the role of gender within local government? Mm. So there's a lot of research uh, within organizational science and even within political science uh, suggesting that women tend to occupy disadvantaged positions within organizational communication networks. Um, they tend to be excluded from dominant coalitions and findings like that. But much of this work has been at 
the of the sort that sort of focused on individual and firm level case studies. So it's typically much more observational, this kind of thing. It's very small scale. There's been very little work actually looking at these questions in a large scale data driven fashion using artifacts from the workplace. So what we wanted to do was to take our model to add these additional capabilities and then say, let's use our model to really understand gender in local government. So we've been working on this. Um, we're still actively working on this. We have some interesting findings that suggest that Indeed, it is the case that men and women do play different roles within, within organizational communication networks. And furthermore, that these roles are different depending on topics of communication. Mm. So women tend to be more involved in day-to-day -day activities, whereas men tend to be more involved in longer-term strategic action activities. And these are findings that, have, that are really of interest to social scientists, both in political science, people who are interested in local government, but also other social scientists who are maybe interested in sort of gender and the role of gender in the workplace more widely. It's pretty fun. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Tell me about how, you know, so so how do, supportive is Microsoft of, of, of some of these, you know, quantitative social science agendas? Incredibly supportive. That is exactly why I'm at Microsoft. Um, so I, I am incredibly lucky to be working in Microsoft Research's New York City lab. We have, so it's an interesting lab. It's focused on three particular areas of research. So it's focused on machine learning, so the area that my background is in. It's also focused on economics and computing, something that touches upon a lot of stuff within the NIPS community. And it's focused on computational social science. So there are some really amazing top-notch researchers there who are explicitly focused on answering questions like this, thinking about models like this, and just really exploring some of these questions. This is an area that Microsoft Research truly excels in, um, and that I anticipate that we will see just even more research in, in computational social science coming out of Microsoft over the next few years. Oh, that's very exciting. It's great. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I, I thought I'd shift gears just a little bit. Sure. You know, um, outside of your research, one of the things that, that you're well known for is founding the Women in Machine Learning uh, workshop. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about that, about the history of that and, and, and its, its vision? Absolutely, yes. So the workshop really started in many ways here at NIPS. Um, so I, as I said, I, I've been to NIPS many times. Um, and in 2005, I finally knew other female PhD students. And as a result, I was able to share a room with them at NIPS. And this was pretty shocking to me that I knew actually other female PhD students. So we were hanging out in our hotel room. There were four of us and we were sitting around talking. Who was it? Uh, there was me, Jen Wartman, um, Lisa Weiner and Angela Yu. Um, and I think actually in that conversation, Catherine Heller was present as well and maybe some other, uh, some other people. But we were basically hanging around and just talking about the fact that it was amazing that there were so many of us. You know, there were four, five. <laughs> this seemed like a huge number. And we got to talking and we, we started trying to think of other women in machine learning. And we got to a point where we had thought of 10 
women in machine learning. We thought, this is incredible. There are 10 of us. And so we thought, you know, maybe we should do something to bring them all together. So the idea that we came up with was to submit a proposal to the Grace Hopper Conference, this annual conference that is focused on women in computing. And we did exactly that. It ended up being me, Jen, and Lisa who ended up doing this. We submitted a proposal. By the time we submitted our proposal to Grace Hopper, we had a list of 25 women in machine learning. And this, this just completely blew our minds. There's an email thread between me and Jen in which I think it's I think it's me who says this in all caps, there are 25 women in machine learning. <laughs> this is incredible. We just thought this was shocking, amazing, totally awesome. So we submitted our proposal to Grace Harper for various reasons. It ended up not happening as a session at Grace Harper, in part because what we'd proposed was much bigger than what Grace Harper sessions typically are. So we decided to go it alone and to co to co-locate a separate standalone event the day before Grace Hopper that year. So that was 2006 by that point. So Jen, Lisa and I then spent several months working really frantically to pull together the first women in machine learning workshop. Um, by the time the workshop happened, it had grown way out of proportion beyond whatever we'd ever we'd ever thought we might have we had something like I don't remember the exact number but it was around 90 registrants that first year which was just unbelievable to us um, the workshop was a huge success really amazing talks amazing presentations from a really interesting group of people and at the end of the workshop we had a discussion trying to figure out where to go from there and it was decided that we should hold another one of these the next year so we recruited some other organizers because we were pretty burnt out at that point um, and the workshop was held again in 2000 2007 and again co-located with Grace Harper. Um, by that time, we'd started to get money to bring participants to the Wimmel workshop. We started doing some serious thinking about what we wanted to do moving forward. Um, we ended up realizing that if we were instead to co-locate with NIPS, which is kind of where this whole thing started anyway, that we would be able to dual purpose our funding by not only using our funding to bring women to Wimmel, but that would then enable them to attend NIPS. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah so we ended fun. up then working with the NIPS Foundation Board to co-locate Wimmel from then onwards with NIPS. It's been at NIPS since, I guess, 2008. Um, we hold it the day before everything starts. I guess it's actually on the same day as the tutorials because people didn't want to come. NIPS is already a very long conference. Right. People didn't want to come for an additional day. Um, but we hold it before uh, the main conference starts so that women get a chance to get to know one, one another so that then when they do attend the main conference and they're in that sea of you know 2,400, 2,500 people, they at least recognize a few familiar faces. Um, and this seems to be seems to be working pretty well. That's fantastic. So how, how big has it grown? How many how many people come to Wimble now? So I can sort of answer that question and sort of not answer it. And here's why. Uh, this year we had 106.
160 registrants, but we explicitly capped registration at 160 because we ran out of space. We had no idea it was going to be. Yep, exactly. So I can concretely tell you that 160 women registered. What I can't tell you is how many more would have registered had we actually been able to accommodate more people. So coming back here to to Montreal next year, are you going to be able to expand it? Yes, we believe so. And one thing that I actually want to take this opportunity to mention is that right since its first year, we were hoping that Wimmel would serve not only as an opportunity to bring together women from the machine learning community and to kind of promote and support their work, but we were really hoping that it would serve as an opportunity to showcase women's work to the wider machine learning community. So we've been thinking a lot about this over the past, I guess, nine years or however long it's been. Um, And every year we do have a small number of men attending the workshop, but we've begun to realize that men, for the most part, don't realize that they can attend. That's right. we'd really like to do is actually see more men attending Wimmel next year. They they won't be presenting their work because it's intended to showcase women's the work of women in yeah, machine learning. That's one of the things um, that people need to realize too is that it is a technical. It's it, a oh, technical that's workshop. absolutely. It is focused on technical discussion, technical talks. So we have a number of invited speakers who are who are women presenting their technical work in machine learning. We have a number of students presenting their technical work. We typically have some kind of mentoring session and some kind of career session, but the bulk of the time really is devoted to that showcasing of technical work. And so we're really hoping that more men will start showing up to Wimmel to really get more of a sense of the amazing work that all of these women are doing. So hopefully that's one of the biggest things that we'll see happen next year, especially as we have more and more space, hopefully, to to accommodate people. Well, well I hope we can get help get the word out. That exactly. Exactly. Yes. So I'm really fascinated by Hannah's look into local politics. I think yeah. it's a really interesting It's brilliant. I, I love the way she just even frames these problems. It's like stuff that suddenly seems very important I never even thought about before. Yeah, definitely. We'll have a link to Hannah's website and a number of her papers up on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. And that's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Brian Adams. Join us next time. Mm-hmm.